In the early morning hours of April 14, 2013, Claudia Maupin awoke. As she opened her eyes and threw the sheets off of her, she never would have expected to find a stranger standing in the bedroom with her. That evening, Davis police officers would find the most gruesome scene in the small town's history. This is Tequila and Crime. and I'm here with Angela. Hey! Uh, she's got a little bit of a crazy case for us today, so I hope you guys are ready. We're both super excited to finally be sharing our first episode with you guys, but before we jump into the crime, let's talk about some tequila real quick, shall we? Uh, mm -hmm. What are you drinking? So I'm giving my tequila a little side of um, healthy <laughs> it's important. I mixed it with some uh, probiotic mango puree, which I'm pretty sure the alcohol kills the probiotic bacteria, but I'm going to pretend like it doesn't. Yeah, no one needs to know that. No. <laughs> we're, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what are you drinking? Um, so, a homemade... <laughs> homemade drink. Um, I have a lemon seltzer water. Mm. I think 100 milliliters of tequila. I don't know how much <laughs> comes in a real shot, but that's what Sean made me. 100 milliliters. 100 milli he asked me how many milliliters are in a shot, and I said seven. I don't know. <laughs> um, We're I was in way America, off, I okay? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and a little bit of that limeade like frozen limeade that you keep in the freezer for margaritas. So it's like a little makeshift marg. Mm. And it's delicious. That sounds good. I love limeade. So it's nice. Good. It gives it a little tang. Yeah. <clears throat> Perfect. Much better than my seltzer and tequila. Yeah. That's a rough one. That one was pretty rough, <laughs> but I drank it. You know, you're, you're really good at handling that stuff. Daddy ain't raised no bitch. <laughs> Damn right. Uh. Oh, um, also another good thing to ask is what kind of tequila? So I don't know about you, but um, we are big fans of Costco. So Ooh. we get the like enormous, like, I don't even know how big it is giant glass thing of tequila and the correct size yeah huge <laughs> um it's actually pretty good um i have been searching for my for a tequila that i'm very excited to try which is um santos tequila which if you're not familiar with that brand name um it is a collaboration between Sammy okay. Hagar and Guy Fieri. I so know it. <laughs> you know it's going to be good. <laughs> I think that we very briefly talked about it 
yeah. but like the name didn't ring a bell. I couldn't remember. And I'm really bad with stuff like that. Like I have absolutely no idea what tequila I'm drinking right now. I just know that it's going to get me drunk. You know, that's the best kind of tequila. Yeah. And usually I go for like Jose. It's nice and cheap. I know what it does to me. There but you go. I don't, Sean wasn't really for that. We got a little, little higher quality, but. Uh, yeah. Oh, Sean. So fancy. Seriously. <laughs> Gotta go buy him a new pair of Crocs soon. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Gotta have fresh Crocs. Got to. <laughs> Summer's right around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay. We're enough with the croc talk. Oh, I love <laughs> the croc talk. <laughs> okay. So before um, I get into everything, I just want to talk about our sources really quick. And a teeny little disclaimer on the episode. Um, this case does deal with issues of mental illness and what can happen when those issues go unresolved or, you know, unnoticed. Uh, our main sources for this case, they're all linked on our blog post for this episode. So you should be able to find all of that stuff. Um, we're going to link it in the description for the episode. And a big part of all of our information came from the 48 Hours episode on this case, as well as the book Killer Confession, Double Murder Dialogue in Davis, California by Lloyd Billingsley, um, which is essentially a transcript of the full interview and confession for this case. So I'm also linking where you can get that book and um, uh, we'll, we'll put a link for the 48 Hours episode as well. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Okay. So. Are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. Head first. Balls, balls deep. deep. <laughs> yeah. Woo, woo. All right. So, Claudia Maupin, 76, and Oliver Chip Northup Jr., 87, were really well known and respected in their small Davis, California community. Chip was a World World War II Navy veteran who then went to law school at UC Berkeley and kind of worked his way up from a court clerk to an eventual prosecutor for the Yolo County District Attorney's Office. By all accounts, he had a very successful career, and even after retiring, he was super passionate about getting people the help they needed and would take on work representing inmates in prison whose cases he thought deserved a second look. Uh, he also enjoyed playing for the popular folk band, the Puda Creek Crawdads, at local events like the Davis Farmer's Market or Davis Day, so he was very well involved in the community. That's and the cutest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I know, the Puda Creek Crawdads, just, yeah, <laughs> extremely Davis. Yep. <laughs> I wonder if they wore Crocs. Ooh. Mm, mm. No, I bet they wore Birkenstocks. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, definitely. Times are changing. Mm-hmm. The times, they are changing. They are. <laughs> uh, and Claudia was very involved in the artistic community as well as in the church. 
her and Chip went to. Uh, she and Chip actually met at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis, where Chip was a charter member. So he essentially, he was one of the founders of that church. Um, and Claudia was a retired technician for a telephone company and continued working as a pastoral associate at that church. She and Chip married in 1998, and their families and the community could not have been happier for them. They both had children from previous mar marriages, relationships, and all of their children seemed super happy that they found each other. Members of the community have said, you know, they were very happy together. They were the kindest, gentlest people. You just wanted to be around them. That hurts my heart. I know. They're just very, very, very sweet. And that definitely comes across in any of the interviews with family members or friends or anything. It's just like... And the photos of them. Oh, I know. Like, they they're looking at me. each other like two, you know, they're like 16 years old. And they're like, yep. I love you so much. You know. Totally smitten. Yeah. Ugh, so cute. Okay. So, on April 14th, the family and friends of Chip and Claudia noticed a number of red flags. Chip was missing from a gig with his band, the Puda Creek Crawdads, as well as Claudia from a church event. And this was very unlike them. They would, if they did miss something, they would have called. Like, they wouldn't just not have shown up. You know, there's right. there was no such thing as a no-call, no-show for them. Mm-hmm. And after multiple calls to the couple go unanswered, Chip's son, Robert, heads to their home to check on them. He rings the doorbell, but there's no answer. He has a key, but decides not to use it. Like, let's face it, we never believe the worst case scenario has actually happened. So I'm sure at this point he thought that their absences could be explained away really simply and, you know, not in such an alarming way. Like With, even being like the kind of person that I am and I'm constantly in a panic. Mm -hmm. If like I was to go to my dad's house and he didn't answer, I probably wouldn't think anything of it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, like, oh, maybe he's napping. Maybe he turned his phone volume down and he just didn't, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I would never expect something like that to happen. No, and of course not. Like, we we never expect that. So, yeah, he just, you know, assumed everything was fine and whatnot. Like and, anyone would. Yeah, like anyone would. Any one of us would. Um, so with a few more hours passing and still no answer, Claudia's daughter, Laura, decides to go check on them as well. She rings the doorbell, and when there's no answer, she decides to walk around the back of the house where she sees a window screen that's been really meticulously cut open. Like, if you were standing further away, you probably wouldn't notice that it was actually cut. Yeah. <clears throat> so, obviously, Laura immediately calls the police, and when they arrive shortly after, they enter the home to a crime scene that no one was prepared for. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the bodies of Chip and Claudia were found still in their beds with a number of stab wounds, 
laying in their own blood. Police were completely baffled by the lack of DNA and physical evidence found at the crime scene, and with no real signs of forced entry besides that one cut screen, they had no leads to go off of. Um, You know, there was no... Nothing was stolen. It didn't seem like a burglary or a robbery. So... So that's where your mind would first go, like... Yeah. I wouldn't expect anyone to just break into my house just to kill me. Exactly. I don't, I don't think anyone would. Right. Not that I have many assets, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So naturally they looked at family first, you know, maybe someone who has a key and decided to cut the screen to their window to make it look like a break in. Or, you know, maybe there was some other kind of motive, but with no items missing from the home, they were hard pressed to find a motive and they were running out of options. So initially they looked at some of Chip's family members, um, but those really didn't go anywhere. So they had, at that point, exhausted all of their options. Until June of 2013 rolls around, that is. Ooh. Ooh, Spooky. Get some justice. Yeah. (laughs) The age age of justice. Uh, So in June... 911 receives an anonymous call stating that they knew who had committed the double homicide. At the time, this caller wanted to remain anonymous out of fear of retaliation. But police were able to get 16-year-old Alvaro to come to the station and share all of the information he had on the murder that took place two months before. Now, of course, police suspected Alvaro in the beginning. After all, he knew way too many details about the murder but eventually they clear him of any suspicion and move on to the person he states that actually committed the murders which was his best friend 16 year old daniel marsh okay so do you know what details he knew about the murder what he told investigators yeah so what Alvaro says is that um, his friend Marsh expresses that he had stabbed these two elderly people to death and, you know, he, he stabbed them and just, you know, kept going even after they were dead and kind of mm-hmm. talked about you know, oh yeah, I broke into their home and I like cut the guy right in the neck and some details that were pretty specific, um, which is what made the police believe that this was an actual credible lead. Um, I, unfortunately they didn't have, they didn't give any access to Alvaro's interview. So I'm not sure all of what was said, but it's pretty clear that he was actually pretty scared of Marsh for a while leading up to that 911 call. Um, he kind of said that Marsh had gotten in trouble pretty recently before that for bringing a knife to school and he like, he felt really threatened and he was actually the one who told the school that Marsh had had a knife on him. So, Oh, it's it's pretty clear that, you know, Alvaro was kind of like, 
you know, this isn't just a game anymore. You know, I yeah. feel like he really did do this. He's not just, you know, talking himself up or something like that. Like, I, I don't understand people who do that, but there are those people right, who lie to get like attention. We all about... knew those people in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good on him for taking it seriously, though. Yeah. Most uh, people don't. Yeah, definitely. And of course, you know, it's always hard when you're the person coming to the police with all this information. You know, you don't want to look like you're the one who did it, but I mm-hmm. think he definitely did the right thing. You know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, on June 17th, officers pick up Marsh from Davis High School and take him into questioning. For the first two hours of the interview and interrogation, Marsh is pretty cooperative. He answers every question and at points even elaborates without request. Anytime the murders came up, he would deflect, often pointing the finger at his friend who made the 911 call. However, once he realized that, you know, the jig was up, that, you know, they knew. He quickly changed his tune and just provided detectives and FBI investigator Chris Campion a little insight into what was truly going on in his head. Yikes. So, from what I saw in the interview and what I read in the book that I mentioned earlier, his tone goes from really cooperative to just very, very flat. He just kind of spills everything in this interview. That's really interesting, though, because were they... I don't know, you see some interrogation videos where they're, like, really laying into them, but I feel like what I saw, they were all very calm. Like... It's interesting, like, what made him switch. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what it was, but from the point leading up to Marsh confessing, it was a lot of, you know, Campion, the FBI investigator, saying, like, just tell us, we can help you, let us help you. It was very much... From the point of like, you know, oh, you're a victim in this too. Like, let us help you. That was kind of the route that they went with Marsh. Okay. And I'm sure that lets him let his guard down a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like that was the best way to approach this because Marsh definitely saw himself as a victim. Um, And it's not to say that, you know, he didn't have some dramatic experiences in his life, but there was so much deflection in everything that he did and said. Um, There really wasn't a lot of internalization of the stuff that had happened. It seemed like instead of pointing everything in to himself, he let it all out on other people. Um, Right. So... I think that the the way that they kind of got him to do that was the best way that they could have actually gotten that confession out of him. I mean, it worked. Yes. Sang like a bird. Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And he definitely went into, he went into some pretty serious detail. Um, so if anyone doesn't want to hear any specific details, I would, this, you know, might be the time that you might want to skip ahead a little bit. Um, because I am going to go into some more graphic details of the night of the attack. So just a heads up. Just so you know. So, during the confession, they ask him, you know, what exactly happened? How did this start? What were, you know, what were his actions? So, Marsh basically says that he had been thinking about murdering someone. He had had homicidal thoughts for a really, really long time. And that night was just... So a 16-year-old to say... Yeah. For a really, really long time. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, he was more specific and he said his the first time he remembers was when he was 10. So, six Ugh. years. But still, I mean, I can't imagine thinking about killing someone when I was 10 years old. Like, no. Blows my mind. But, you know, everyone's <laughs> different. To each um, his own. Yeah. So, Marsh kind of. He was just kind of like, you know, it was just my breaking point that night. I just knew, you know what, I'm going to do it tonight. So he actually prepared himself. He wore a black jacket, a, you know, black ski mask. He wore black boots. And he actually had the forethought to put duct tape on the bottom of his boots so that it wouldn't leave any recognizable, you know, shoe prints. That's so fucking gnarly. I've never heard of anyone thinking of that before. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that definitely tells me that it wasn't just, like, I don't know. You know, he had, he had been planning to oh, yeah. attack someone for a really long time, obviously. Um, however, the person was not really of interest to him. He didn't really care who it was. He decided that what he was going to do was just to try doors and windows. So he just went down his street, down a couple blocks, trying doors and windows to see if any of them were open. And he said that he tried like 50, but who knows if that's really... Yeah, we don't know if that's actually the right number, but... What teenager has that attention span? <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I, don't know. I definitely didn't, especially not at 16. Nope. Um, so, at that point, he gets to Claudia and Chip's home. And, unfortunately, they had left the window open. There was a screen on it, obviously, but they had left a window open to one of their rooms. And oh, was it their bedroom? So it wasn't their bedroom. It was a different, like a, like a family room or something, oh, okay. but it was like right near their bedroom. Oh. Um, and they had left that window open. And that was do enough it, for him. Just yeah. lock your windows. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Which this is, I, I will say, I've never, I, I mean, especially in Davis, I've never heard of someone just trying doors and windows. I mean, I actually grew up in Davis and 
during the summers, we would just leave our front door completely open. Like, bunch of come on in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's probably I've stupid. I've always been paranoid. Yeah. So he gets into the room and he just kind of like walks around and finally he gets to the bedroom and he says he just kind of watches them sleep for a little bit. And it wasn't a long time. It was just like a couple minutes And that's when Claudia kind of wakes up and she kind of gets the sheets off. You know, we can maybe guess that she was either getting a drink of water or, you know, maybe she was going to the bathroom. We don't know. But that's when she notices Marsh in the room. And she actually, where he says that she screamed and that's when he started stabbing her. And then Chip woke up and he started attacking him as well. Oh my god. And in total, Claudia received 67 separate stab and incised wounds, and Chip received 61 separate stab wounds. Now, there were a couple really odd things about what Marsh did to the bodies that, you know, made it really specific to that crime and that's kind of how that's how they knew that Alvaro was telling the truth and that Marsh really was the person that had committed this crime so Marsh placed a cell phone in Claudia's abdomen so after he was done stabbing her he just took a cell phone that was sitting on the nightstand or something and like stuck it in her and he didn't give really a reason why he just said I don't know why I just wanted to kind of like mess with the police and he he did something similar with Chip and he placed a, like a drinking glass inside of his abdomen Can same you thing the fucking worst yeah man I it, it's <laughs> super strange super weird so that was one of the things that like when he said that they knew that he was the person because that wasn't something that they released to the public or to the media or anything. Yeah. So that was like, as soon as Marsh said it, they put it together with what Alvaro said. Yeah. So Alvaro, I don't think said anything about the drinking glass or anything, but, um, he did say something about Claudia's eye. So Marsh had told Alvaro that he wanted to see what an eyeball looked like And he had tried to cut out her eyeball, but he said that the bone around her eye was really hard, and so he just kind of gave up. Oh my god. And along with that, it seems that Marsh's really big fascination was anatomy. So he did end up kind of dissecting parts of Claudia and you know, seeing what the inside of a body was like. And he just kind of said this very nonchalantly and was kind of like, yeah, it wasn't the same as what I thought it was going to be. Which, I mean... Gross. Yeah. I don't even know what to say about that. I wonder what made him do those things to Claudia versus Chip. So... I didn't read anything really specific. Um, I 
unfortunately I haven't been able to get my hands on any of the trial transcripts. But from what I read in the interview and confession and the way that Claudia's body was treated by Marsh, he really seemed to have an anger towards women. The way that he talked about some of the female family members was a lot more aggressive and a lot more demeaning than the way he spoke about the men that were in his life. Okay. So I think that he had a lot of anger built up towards women. So I think that it just kind of came out that way where, yes, he killed Chip, Mm -hmm. but that kind of like... I really don't care about your body and I don't think you're even like worth a human anymore treatment to Claudia. Yeah. Even at that point, like it sounded like he only killed Chip because he was a threat at that moment. I, yeah. So that is another thing. So he, he did say that he, he stabbed Chip right in the neck. Like, first Mm -hmm. thing, and that was pretty much what killed him. But there was still a lot of overkill on these bodies. I mean... Yeah, that's true. 61 stab wounds. Like, I can't imagine doing one action 61 times. Any action. No. Like, it's, it's a lot. And I have not tried, but I've heard that stabbing is a lot more difficult and physically exhausting than you think it is. That's why a lot of them are, a lot of stabbings are like in, you know, the three times or like, you know, maximum of like 10 times. But yeah, this feels like so much anger, which is why, of course, the police thought, you know, maybe this is personal because it's such an extreme overkill. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So... If you're still listening, <laughs> past all of that. Um, Unfortunately, I am. <clears throat> yeah. Thank so, you. So, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, so after, after all of that, you know, he kind of went home. He actually kept the boots and jacket and gloves that he was wearing as essentially souvenirs. And that was another thing that they were able to connect back to him because there was blood on those um, items of clothing. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. So they did have... So there wasn't evidence of him at the crime scene, but there was evidence at his home. Right. So that was a bit of a misstep, but, you know, oh well. So after that... He kind of, he expresses that he was just in this euphoric high. And he actually said that he did try to do something again, um, but not in the same way. He actually walked around at night with a baseball bat because he, you know, obviously he wanted to do it again. He wanted to feel that high again. Uh, But he said that he wanted to do it slightly differently so that the police wouldn't connect the two crimes. So he put a lot of thought into it. Yes, um, a lot of thought, unfortunately. (laughs) But fortunately, 
it seems that, you know, he was just kind of out of luck those nights and he didn't see anyone. So luckily nothing happened. Um, but yeah, so to me, what, what I would compare that to is, you know, if you're at all familiar with any other serial murderers is Israel Keys. So the reason that I say that is like, I don't want to make him sound super scary or anything like that. But I'm just talking in sort of like the, the way that people commit crimes. So Israel Keys had no specific victim. He worked on opportunity, but he planned meticulously. So the person didn't really matter. It was more the place and the timing. And I think that that's what Marsh really was like kind of feeding into that part of him. Yeah. It, it wasn't so much of like a, an attachment to a particular type of victim. It was really just about like getting this urge out. Yeah. So now at this point, we kind of like, we have the confession. We're pretty sure that he did it. So the trial actually begins in mid 2014. So a while after this confession and which is always a bummer, but um, the way that the legal system works, everything just kind of takes a really long time. So even though it was already in this like mid 2014, it was pushed all the way back to August because Marsh changed his original plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. So his lawyers, my favorite quote. (laughs) Yeah. So his lawyers put together what I'm kind of like calling it like the Zoloft defense. They essentially blamed the medications that he was on for this entire crime, Mm -hmm. which I mean, luckily I think that they had that, FBI investigator because he asked all the right questions in order to kind of circumvent that from happening in the future. So in the interview and confession, they asked him about any medications he was on. And in the interview, he says that after he started taking stuff like Zoloft and Wellbutrin and that kind of stuff, um, that he actually felt a lot better, that he felt healthier. He didn't like feel as intensely angry and that well, kind of stuff. That's fucking scary. So, of course, you know, at that point, I don't believe he was actually on any of that stuff. But either way, medications like Zoloft and Wellbutrin and, you know, those kind of, like, antidepressants and antipsychotics, they don't tend to bring a, like, a, a psychotic break. Like, they're they're made to prevent that. And it seems that he had been going through a lot of treatments to make sure that he was actually at the right dosage. Because, of course, as we all know, and as we should know, those kind of medications are really, really tricky. So you have to be really vigilant and be working with a really dedicated psychiatrist and doctor to get those levels correct. And it sounds like that's what was happening. So... The so, like, he defense. was still in that process of getting things, like, figured out, or? No, I don't think so. I think that they okay. had had it figured out, um, 
because he he had actually like voluntarily hospitalized himself for a pretty severe eating disorder and i mean i'll be honest this kid is like you know you see pictures of him and he looks like 80 pounds soaking wet i mean he is skinny yeah um so you know that sense of control that's another part of that um but you know obviously chris campion the fbi investigator it kind of tried to prevent that insanity plea from working in the first place so that was really really smart because this was pretty quickly dismissed um by the prosecution and by the jury um they just they were not seeing it they didn't have enough evidence backing that up so finally on December 12th, 2014, that was when the sentencing finally went through. Marsh received 52 to life. So what that breaks down to is 25 years for each victim, as well as um, two years, one year for each, for use of a deadly weapon, which is what they call an enhancement. Um, and the jury actually found him guilty of two enhancements. So one was this use of a deadly weapon, and the other was uh, lying in wait. But for whatever reason, they did not add anything on time-wise for that enhancement. Um, I'm not really sure why, but that's just kind of how it goes, you know, legally. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's a bit of a give and take to get what people want, get the best thing out of it in the end. So... I feel like 25 years is nothing for, like, the brutality of what happened. Do you think yeah. that that's because he was so young at the time? I think that that was a big part of it. So, the, the, the Yolo County attorneys decided that they were actually going to try him as an adult. Which they had their own legal battle to go through in order to prove that he should be tried as an adult. So that's probably what made it take so long in the first place. Um, so instead of being tried as a minor, where I think the longest sentence you can get is 20 years or something like that. Somewhere around there. Oh, Jesus. Um, they were able to get that 52 to life. Um, so... You know, as much as it is like, yeah, I think 25 years is kind of short for the amount of overkill uh, that mm -hmm. he put on Claudia and Chip. I think that these were two completely innocent people that were just sleeping in their own bed in their house and... Marsh just couldn't take these urges anymore and took it out on them. And that's kind of where that mental health discussion comes in, where, you know, I don't think that we have a system in place right now to help people like that or to do anything about people like that besides waiting until they commit a heinous crime and putting them in jail. So sad. Yeah, and I think that it is really sad because there was a point in his interview where 
he was like, you know, I want to kill people, but I don't want to want to kill people. Ugh, it gave me chills. The way he said it. So yeah. creepy. And this is the kid who saved his dad's life once. Like, how old was he when that happened? Oh, yeah, he was, I, I don't know, he was like nine or ten, something like that. He was a little kid, and he, so his dad had a heart attack, and he, like, performed CPR and called 911 and saved his dad's life. And he's, he actually earned a Red Cross award for it, so, you know. Did the they media, revoke that? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Strangely, they, they didn't make a comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this this case really shook the Davis community to its core. Um, nothing like this happens in Davis. I mean, our you know Davis's biggest crime is bike theft. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's you know it, it's one of the safest towns that you could ever live in, but. So for something like this to happen, it really shook people that lived in that community. And not only that, it really broke the hearts of his friends and his family. Um, I mean, I, I was able to talk to one of the people that were, they were close to him. They were a friend of his and they were kind enough to kind of talk to me about this case. Um, they just kind of said, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Um, they knew that, you know, he was having a hard time, but, you know, he was a teenager. You know, there's angst all over the place. Yeah, what teenager doesn't go through a hard time? Yeah. Um, but they just said, you know, this, you know, I would have never anticipated the guy I knew, the friend I knew, would do anything like that. So... I think that there was a big part of his life that he kept hidden from his friends. And, you know, it you never know how you're going to react in a situation like that. To hear that someone that you know and you love and you care about has done something like this. I mean, it's surreal. I mean, my my heart hurts for that child that had to go through those things on his own and didn't know how to handle them. But yeah, everyone knows that he, he did it. Like, it's very unfortunate, the things that he went through, but nothing makes what he did okay. Nothing's going to justify that. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can definitely acknowledge something is there. Like, you know. Right. I'm really upset about something, but I know that the consequences of it are going to be much worse. So it's kind of like, he, I, I do think that he was kind of in between a rock and a hard place where it's like, what if he did say something? Would they just lock him up in a psychiatric hospital? And for how long? Like, yeah. do you really want to live like that? Or you, do you just want to try and hide it? You know? It's, it's really sad. It's a really hard thing to even imagine what it's like to go through but I mean I will say you know I really really love white cheddar Cheetos <laughs> I love them I want them I like where this is going <laughs> <laughs> I really want them but I know that if I buy them I will eat them all in one sitting 
And the consequences of that are not good. So I just, I don't buy them. I respect that. You have more willpower than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I understand that the consequences are something that I don't want to deal with. Of course, Cheetos and murder are not the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, a little different. (laughs) A little bit different. Yeah, we can acknowledge that he obviously had a lot of problems and a lot of things going on that he wasn't getting help for, but that doesn't outweigh the consequence that happened, you know? Right. He took the two lives of people that, you know, had done nothing wrong. And even if, you know, they weren't super sweet, cute, elderly couple in love, and they were, like, two drug dealers, like, it doesn't matter. Those are two lives that... You have no right to take those. Yes, exactly. So... Yeah, this this case was a big one, and I mean, I remember when it happened, and it's it's a crazy thing to kind of see your community cope with. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, time for some more of that tequila. Seriously, I finished my drink, so <laughs> I'm go have Sean make me another. <laughs> All right. Well. I hope that I haven't, you know, scared any people living in Davis or anything like that. Um, but I think that it's an important... I hope we have. Lock your goddamn <laughs> <Yeah>. windows. <laughs> lock your windows, lock your doors. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think that it's a pretty important conversation to have whenever you're talking about mental health. You know, what can we do better? How can we revamp the system that we have in order to help people who desperately need that help Mm -hmm. you know um but either way i am very excited to continue doing more crazy cases and talking about all sorts of issues and things that we care about um and on that note you know, if anyone has a case that they really want uh, researched or for us to do, please, you know, send us an email, tequilaandcrime at gmail.com. Uh, we're, we're always happy to look at new cases. And if you know someone who is missing or, you know, you have a friend who has a family member that's missing or you just want to get the word out there about something just send us an email. Like we wanted this platform to be there for people who needed light shown on them, you know? Yes. So we are so excited to continue doing this. And, you know, if you get a chance and you can get into the iTunes uh, podcast app, please, you know, leave us a little comment, you know, however many stars you think we deserve. No, no. Just five. Just five. It's just only five. five. <laughs> they changed the rules. It's only five. Oh. Or you just leave. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Five and or um, leave. <laughs> five or leave. That's our new motto. Uh, sounds and good. And you can find us on Instagram um, at Tequila and Crime. Yeah. Super simple, right? Super um, simple. And next time I have a super creepy story for you guys it's going to be a little bit lighter than a double homicide but i'm still (laughs) hoping to really give you nightmares so check it out
Ooh, yeah, I'm going to be scared. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. See you guys later. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.